But you know, we live uh, today in a society that loves bargains, don't we? Everybody loves a bargain. Everybody loves that feeling of getting that, that great big bang for just a few little bucks. And it's not limited to just waiting for the blowout sales at the big chain stores or those double and triple coupons I know you ladies put in the supermarket. Because anymore you've got people scoping out garage sales and searching classified ads, making watch lists on eBay, all to figure out what's the least I can pay and still get my hands on that certain something that I really want. Uh, or, said another way, what's the minimum level of financial risk I have to make in order to get the maximum return on my investment? And that's not a bad thing. In fact, the scriptures encourage us to be good stewards of God's gifts. But where we go wrong, where the trouble comes in, is, is when we look for those same kinds of bargains in the realm of our spiritual lives. And, and what I mean is this, if we were to take a minute to honestly evaluate the way we're living out our individual Christian life, to, to, to really examine it, do our attitudes and actions seem to be saying, what is the least amount that I have to do to follow Jesus and still receive all the good stuff of heaven? Uh, and that kind of self-centered spiritual logic is not new to our generation. right? As we've seen in our a sermon text over the last several weeks. Texts that have seen Jesus at the pinnacle of his popularity and attracting not only a big crowd of listeners, as we said, but actually acquiring a significant number of regular followers beyond just the twelve. And to them, to those multitudes, Jesus was a great miracle worker. And he was a celebrated healer, a powerful teacher and preacher, someone who could potentially lead the Jewish people out from under the oppression of the Romans and into a new era of freedom. And as I said last week, you'd think Jesus would have been ecstatic over the number of people who packed those Galilean hillsides to just, just to catch a glimpse of them. He would have begun to capitalize on his popularity and began consolidating his authority and, and extending his influence. But incredibly, the Bible says that even as larger and larger crowds began to gather around him, that our Lord Jesus, rather than talking up the prospect of joining his mushrooming social movement, uh, he instead began to intentionally seek to weed it down and, and uh, or weed it out and tear it down. And his method of doing that, his method of doing that was to use comparisons and parables full of some really hard sayings to drive home the point that in order to be one of his followers demands a 100% commitment. That when it comes to actually following, following Jesus, it's all or nothing. And that regardless of whatever the people of his day may have heard, no matter what misplaced hopes they may have pinned on him, and aside from anything they may have hoped to gain personally, that if, if they in their day, or, or you or I in ours, want to be a Christian, there's no bargain to be had here. And, and to show you that, we're going to actually backtrack just a little into some of the scripture that we read last week because there was a whole lot in it uh, and we really only scratched the surface. So we're returning to Matthew chapter 10 and to our Lord's promise of pains and, and problems and persecutions that lay ahead for those who would be genuine followers of Jesus. So again, remember I, I straight off the lectionary and we'll, we'll get back there, but 
for now we're going to be reading uh, Matthew chapter 10, uh, verses 16 to uh, 25, and then 34 to 39. So this is what Matthew writes, uh, Jesus speaking. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep, sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak, or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. They call the master of the house be how much more will they malign those of his household? And back in verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord, this is the third Sunday we've looked at some really hard sayings from the scriptures. They kind of push our boundaries and test our limits and make us question things that we thought we knew and so Father just uh, keep doing that that's, that's the point of scripture to stretch us and teach us and so Father we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, to open our minds uh, to receive the, the message that you have for us today because we ask it in Jesus name Amen so you know one of the metaphors that Jesus uses to thin out the crowd is that image of, of, of carrying a cross and, and he said when we read Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so far, he's not really offering much in the way of a sales pitch to join his married little band, is he? Because right? uh, people in those days knew what crosses were. And they knew that uh, a cross was not some cute medallion you hung around your neck or some nice ornament in the church. No, they knew that crosses were where people died. Crosses were where people died for treason and for capital crimes. And I think maybe the, the closest referral we may have would be to the electric chair or to the hangman's noose. But honestly, either one of those is a walk in the park compared to crucifixion. Crucifixion was a slow, agonizingly horrible way to die, and it was that way by design. Because the crosses that lined the main roads in and out of Roman-dominated towns like Jerusalem was, were designed to shock. And they were intended as a deterrent to crime and to civil unrest. 
And it was into the midst of those stark realities that Jesus says that if we want to be his disciples, we must pick up and bear our cross. And I think sometimes we misunderstand exactly what Jesus means by that. What it means to carry our cross, because oftentimes we think that our crosses are something that happen to us. Like, like if we experience a misfortune, or if we have some kind of physical ailment, or, or permanent disability, or, or have to deal with some cranky co-worker, or a rotten relative, or you name it, you fill in the blank. And we sigh and, and throw up our hands and say, well, I suppose that's you know, just a cross I have to bear. But that wasn't what Jesus was talking about. He is not talking about the cross as something that happens to us, but rather as something we sign up for, just like he did. So that we can, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And so the only difference is that Christ chose the cross for the joy of winning our redemption, while we, on the other hand, choose it for the purpose of furthering our sanctification and doing it out of gratitude for the forgiveness that Christ has already won for us in heaven. And so bearing our cross, then, is the choice that we make as believers to put certain things to death. And those things that we're to put to death are those things that hinder us from being more and more Christ-like. And they might be different for all of us individually. But the Apostle Paul does give us a good list of some that are common to humanity. He tells us in Colossians 3, uh, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seek at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So, and then he gives us the list. He says, so put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the count of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its created. Which really was the, the second point of Jesus' hard saying in today's sermon, that all of this, all of this idea of cross-bearing and sin-killing and our lifelong work toward our personal sanctification that he demands of his disciples is not only his right to insist on, but is made infinitely easier because of who he is. And because of the high and holy position that he occupies. That's why he can say with complete sincerity in today's gospel, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, if you think about it for just a minute, for anybody else in the whole history of humanity to say that, to make that kind of statement would be the height of arrogance and pathological narcissism. Okay? But not for Jesus, because Jesus knew who he was. 
And he wanted all of those who would be his disciples to know it too. And so the point of this polemic exchange is that Jesus is trying to tell the people that were trying to follow him what we believe about the Messiah matters. I mean, yes, it's great to say that you believe in Jesus. What the Bible says, even demons do that. But who you believe Jesus is makes a difference and it affects your life. Think for a minute about what the people of Jesus day believed about him and how, how it affected their actions. We've got the religious leaders. They believed Jesus was a fraud and a threat to their life, so they tried to kill him. The crowds, they believed Jesus was a social welfare peddling warrior king who would bring safety and security by reconstituting the nation of Israel to its former glory and usher in a new golden age. When Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they turned on him. The disciples, they believed Jesus, hey, maybe he was likely the Messiah, but when he was arrested, they fled for their lives and hid. Apparently afraid that uh, they had been wrong and had maybe somehow wasted the prior three and a half years of their life. So what you believe about Jesus makes a difference. And it makes a difference in, where, uh, in whether you place him in the highest category of devotion and obedience even above those who in human terms rightly deserve our highest love and loyalty? Or do you like the, the crowds and the disciples finding when life gets tough and decisions get difficult and you find yourself getting pushed to the wall, uh, pushed to where you got to choose between your faith and your friends or your faith and your family or your faith and the possibility of the future of your career? Do you throw in the towel? you pick up your cross. Because church, it's in moments like that when our true belief about Jesus begins to surface. And that's where the rubber meets the road, right? And you have to face the question of, do you believe that Jesus is ruling right now at the right hand of the Father, right this minute, interceding for you personally, forgiving your sins, or do you, or do you get yourself anxious and worried about a whole lot of stuff that you have no control over? Start looking for impending disasters around every corner. And walk around impotent and defeated in your Christian witness because you're still carrying guilt over old sins that you've already been forgiven for. Uh, and that's why this is not just some academic discussion. It's not just an opportunity to work out your feelings or improve your self-esteem. No, this stuff is a matter of eternal life and death. As Jesus makes very clear in a later sermon in John's Gospel, what we believe about him affects our eternal destiny. He says in John chapter 8, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. And so it means you're separated from God and you don't receive the gift of eternal life in heaven because you don't believe Jesus is who he said he is. Son of God, sent by the Father to die in your place for your sins. And notice Jesus says, unless you believe that I am. So Jesus is referring there back to the Old Testament name that God used of himself. The one that we talked about this past week in Bible study. And by saying I am, in other words, Jesus is saying, unless you believe that he is God, that he is the I am, you will die in your sins. And so Jesus is very clear that it does make a difference what you believe about it. That it affects your eternal destiny. And Jesus is asking you and me, like he constantly asked the people of his day, who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? 
in, uh, in one of his classic books, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he kind of addresses the idea of Jesus being who he said he was. This is what he wrote. I love this quote. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And Lewis continues, now it seems to be obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, no matter however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is. You know, ever since Jesus came into this world, we have been forced to deal with who he is. And, and church, who he is puts us at odds with the world. The early church had to endure persecution because of their testimony of Jesus in the face of Rome's insistence on the worship of the emperor. The church in China today suffers from persecution because of their testimony of Jesus in the face of communism. And even right here in America, Christians are confronted uh, daily in the face of cultural norms and political correctness and left-leaning politicians who are at this very moment actively threatening our way of life all because of our testimony of Jesus Christ and our sincere desire to follow him at the end. So what do we do? Well, in the midst of all of that, the answer, the, the beginning answer is still the same. It's a call to repentance. And for some, that may not be exactly what you think it is, because the biblical call to repentance is more than just rejecting any specific sins. Because the primary biblical definition of repentance in the Bible means to change one's mind. Now, now don't mishear me. This is not a license to go out and sin, right? A, a turning away from moral sin is always the result and the fruit and the evidence of real repentance. But initially, initially, repentance is a change of mind about whoever you think Jesus is, if it isn't the Son of God. If you think Jesus was just a good teacher, you must repent and change your mind. If you think Jesus was just a great moral leader and an instigator of social justice, you must repent and change your mind. If you think Jesus is a myth propagated by the church to gain power and influence, you must repent and change your mind. In short, if you think that Jesus is anything less than the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and the personal Savior and Redeemer of your sins, you must first repent and change your mind. And recognize that He is indeed Lord and Christ. And that it's the same call that you and I receive today, that effectual call of God as He draws people to Himself out of the chaos of this world. Uh, a world where public consensus and and pluralism and, and inclusivity uh, are the order of the day and calls us to make a bold statement and a brave declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord 
and then to live like you really believe in it. Regardless of what comes against us. Whether it be COVID-19 and its perpetual mutations or, or the tyranny of Christ-hating politicians in the halls of Congress or the race-baiting teachers and school board trustees who are pushing critical race theory on our kids to distract them from the gospel instead of teaching them to actually think for themselves. And let's be honest, that's just a small list from among all the things that we are daily called to face. Well, brothers and sisters, Christ has not called disciples to himself to make their lives easy and prosperous. He calls disciples to make them holy and productive. Right? We're not called to the life of ease and prosperity. We are called to be holy and we are called to be productive. That's why Jesus said that willingness to take up his cross is the hallmark of a true disciple because it's not ambiguous. It's not new aging. It's not metaphysical. It is not all touchy-feely. It is real peace and real power to overcome the great enemies that are pitted against us in this world. Uh, and that kind of lifestyle is anything but the easy way out. And it's definitely no bargain. Not, not for us and not for our Lord Jesus. Instead, it's like that great old hymn that Thomas Shepard wrote. Uh, Must Jesus bear... The cross alone and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. Whatever form that comes in. Be it loss of family and friends. Be it loss of financial security for the cause of Christ. Or, or if the winds of this worldly culture keep turning, perhaps one day full-blown persecution for those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. Now, not, don't get me wrong. It's not going to be the outside world, it's not, or even for the compromised evangelical fish that make up most of the American church uh, without a backbone, but rather for those who boldly stand against the LGBTQ and the BLM and against Antifa, you know what I always tell you, against all the alphabet people. It's going to come to us who courageously stand up for the sanctity of life and the centrality of the biblical definition of family as the glue that holds society together and of the rightful place of the moral authority of the church and our absolute right to stay open for the public worship of Almighty God. Come hell or high water, or pandemic, or Democrat politicians locking down states, but church, that kind of genuine faith doesn't win us friends with the world, does it? It doesn't get us in with the cool kids. It doesn't win us an audience with the Ivy League elite, but that's okay. That's a good thing. We need to be on a collision course with the likes of them because the institutional church has kowtowed for far too long to those forces, leaving one Christian apologist to quit. The biggest trouble with the modern American church is that nobody wants to kill us anymore. <laughs> right? We don't make a difference, right? The biggest trouble with the modern American church is that nobody wants to kill us anymore. Why is that? It's because for the last 70 years or so, we've been too busy wearing crosses made to look attractive and not picking up bloody ones to kill our sins Amen. and to redeem our society because the truth is, as hard as it is to hear, is that those who make an initial confession of faith and say they desire to follow Jesus, but they refuse to accept the hardship and the persecution and the discipline it entails are false converts and are fruitless bodies and are like that rocky soil with no depth in the parable of the sower, and there are millions of them who want a bargain basement, easy believism, and a deep discount discipleship. But church, 
There's no one-day sale here. Christ has not left us that option. So heed his call. Pick up your cross. Push back on the culture of this world. And I challenge you in his name to lose your life for the sake of Christ. Can we pray together? Father God, that's super hard to hear. There's no two ways about it. But it's the words of Jesus. You, you said it. We believe it. Give us grace, Lord, to follow it uh, wherever we go out to from here in our individual lives. Whatever that may mean, whatever that may look at, look like. Uh, Father, call us away from the sins of this world. Uh, call us away from uh, lust of the flesh. Call us away from the things that are so enticing on, on television and the internet and magazines and all these things, Lord, that distract us uh, from the reading of your word and the work of the church. And so, Lord, we place ourselves in your hands. Uh, trusting, Lord, in all that you're about to do for us this week. Uh, and we thank and praise you, Father, in Jesus' name.